Well, hey, good morning. If you want to save a little money, I have some copies of that book, believe it or not. And uh, I'll try to get them here next week and the weeks to follow. And you can, you can not have to spend the, the high dollar amount on seedbed.com. So thanks for the, uh, for the endorsement to pa- from Pastor Rob. Uh, if you've got your Bibles today, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 is, is where we're going to be today. And we've been in a series on prayer. Prayer... 101 is, is the, the title of the series, and I thought, rather than me just teaching about prayer, what if we began today by praying with, with an exercise in, in prayer? And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's part of the reason I come to church on Sunday morning is to get away from exercise, but we're going to start with an exercise in, in prayer, and, and there are many different kinds of prayer in the same way that there are many different, say, strokes uh, that you can swim, or backstroke and breaststroke and freestyle, um, but each of these kinds of prayer, each of these strokes, so to speak, can get you across the pool, and each of them is better than, than drowning, drowning in anxiety or or loneliness, or, or worry. And so we're going to look at kind of a unique um, example of prayer. And in the scriptures, Paul at one point says that we should pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians. And I don't know if you're like me, you're like, well, how do I do that? Like, I got to do stuff, man. I got like, you know, expense reports, and I can't just pray constantly. How do you pray without ceasing. And there are different views on like what that would what that would look like. But one of the views that came about in the early church was, well, okay, what if we linked prayer to something we already do without ceasing, oftentimes without knowing it? And that is breathing. Right? You don't have to like remind yourself typically to breathe. Right? We do breathe without ceasing or you, you wouldn't be here, right? And so what if we linked prayer to breathing and what if we linked it to the scriptures? And so one of the ways that I was taught to do this is, I'll put it up on the screen, next slide. When we breathe in, that's, that's the first step, right? We've all got that. We naturally sort of pause and hold for a moment. And then we breathe out. And so what if we linked each of those movements of breath to a passage or a portion of Scripture? And so in the psalm, Psalm 46, it says this. Next slide. Be still, God says, and know that I am God. And so that's God speaking. And one of the things that's true, especially in that last phrase, that 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 I am God, God says, the implication is that you are not, and I am not, right? And there's some freedom in that. And so the first phase, this breathing in and this being still, is the recognition of God's presence right now. We recognize his presence. In that interval, that that moment of pause, we enjoy God's presence, the fact that he loves us unconditionally. And then in the last movement, breathing out, we release that anxiety that we might have to God. The anxiety sometimes that comes from trying to be God or trying to take God's job. And so I thought, what if we would begin today, instead of me just teaching on prayer, 
with this exercise, all right? So why don't we do this? Why don't you close your eyes and let's practice breathing for a moment if you need to practice that. A deep breath in, a moment of pause, and then a breath out. Be still and know that I am God. Recognize the presence of God. Enjoy the presence of God. Release anxiety to God. Let's take a few breaths and in each movement think about those ideas that we've that we've laid out on the screen and in your in your update. Be still and know that he is God. Lord, as we begin today, we recognize your presence. We're thankful, Lord, that we don't have to invite you here because you are already here. You fill us like the breath that fills our lungs. We recognize that presence, the presence of your spirit as we, as we breathe in. Lord, we pause in mid-breath to enjoy your presence, that before we ever think about doing anything for you, that you love us. And Lord, it's because of that that we breathe out. We release the anxiety, the worry, the frustration, the, the things that have bogged us down this week. We release that anxiety to you. And we thank you for your presence and your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can do that whenever you like. It's in the update if you want to practice that, that prayer exercise this week in your closet or anywhere else that you might want to practice it. I don't know if you had a nickname in school. That might be a, a sort of something you don't want to think about, your school nickname. Uh, most of us did. Uh, my nickname affectionately was Church Boy or Preacher's Kid. Right, and my dad was a was a was a preacher, a pastor, and and so I, I got the nickname Church Boy. And I, to be honest, I didn't view it as like a form of persecution. I figured that you know I was going to have to have one nickname or the other, and the other ones that were probably high on the list for people were not any nicer than that. All right, so I I could be like the skinny kid or the shy kid or the kid with really bad acne, and and I was all of those things. So I was okay with them calling me. Um, church boy, but uh, there was, I, I remember one instance where a friend of mine was talking to me, and it sort of got under my skin, and he was, I don't even know what he was talking about, I don't even really remember who it exactly was, but he turned to me, and he said, well, yeah, I mean, then you've got McNall over here, and his dad's a priest, and I thought, my dad's not a priest, like, I thought, when he said that, I got this picture of my dad wearing this, right? Like he, was a, like he was a Catholic priest, you know, and celibate, and I'm, I'm like, my dad's not a priest, man. Like, how do you think I got here? Like, I have three little sisters. You clearly don't know anything about Christianity. My dad is not a priest. He does not wear, I've never seen him wear anything like this, and I was sort of indignant that he called my dad a priest. I didn't know at that time that there are lots of denominations that have priests, 
right? Not just the Roman Catholic Church, and they're not all celibate, and, and they don't even all wear, you know, clerical collars, but for some reason, that really got under my skin. I was okay with being called church boy, but I was not okay with him calling my dad a priest. And as I begin to sort of read the scriptures, I realized that actually I was wrong, biblically speaking. My dad, biblically speaking, is a priest. Um, and there's something in the Protestant tradition for all evangelicals, for all Christians, really, called the priesthood of believers. And so I want to talk to you today about prayer, but I want to talk to, to you about prayer through the lens of the priesthood. And I want to try to, to get you to consider something that maybe you've never um, really considered before. I want to try to encourage you to become a priest. And so the title of this message is Grab Your Collar. And uh, I even brought a collar. I've never even owned one of these before. I ordered one on Amazon. Um, grab your collar. This is about embracing your calling as a believer priest. And I think one of the biggest problems with Christianity, and I'm, I'm completely serious about this, is that we, as regular people, as Christians, have neglected our priestly vocation. And that we've come to view Christianity as a kind of ticket, a ticket to the afterlife, rather than a collar by which we are engaged in priestly service. And so I'm going to try to prove that to you today and apply that for you today. But before we do that, we need to look at what does it mean in the Bible to be a priest? Because it has nothing to do with a black shirt or, or even literally speaking a collar. And so Hebrews chapter 4 says this. This is the foundation of a sort of theology of, of priesthood in the New Testament. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews says that Jesus, the first observation in this looking into what it means to be a priest, Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. And if you look at what that means, clearly it doesn't mean that Jesus, you know, wears a, a collar or a black, a black sort of clerical shirt. But a priest, you could say this, a priest is a connector or a mediator between a holy God and needy people. That's what a priest was in the Old Testament, and that's what Hebrew says Jesus does for us. A priest is a connector or a mediator between a holy God and a needy people. And to say that Jesus is our high priest is to say simultaneously that I on my own could not 
bring myself to God. I couldn't bridge the gap of my own inadequacy, my own sin, my own shortcomings. I couldn't earn my way to God. I needed a great high priest to serve as the the connector, to stand in the gap between me, a sinful person, and a holy God. A priest stands in that middle space, and Jesus does that. He connects us with with God the Father, and it strikes me that to stand between two people with arms outstretched, grasping metaphorically, you know, the hand of God over here and, and my hand over here is to assume a cruciform posture, is it not? Arms outstretched, connecting a, a holy God to fallen, needy, sinful people. Jesus is our great high priest. It says this in 1 Timothy 2.5, something very similar. Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great high priest. He's our capital M mediator and the only one who can connect us with God. There's no pastor, there's no friend, there's no parent, there's no spouse that can connect you to God. Jesus is is the mediator. And you could say, well, that seems pretty clear. I mean, if Jesus is our great high priest, then clearly we are not priests because, you know, we're not Jesus, right? So does the fact that Jesus is our great high priest mean that people other than Jesus can't have a priestly role? And according to the Bible, the answer is clearly no. It doesn't mean that. And we see that if we turn forward in in the story from Jesus to, to the apostles and Maybe the second observation that we could make is that Paul saw his ministry as one of priestly offering. It's a second insight, that Paul saw his ministry as one of priesthood, as a priestly offering. And he says this in in Romans chapter 15, toward the end of the letter, he says this in verse 16. He says, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, and he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is well well aware that Jesus is the one mediator between God and people, that he's our, our great high priest, and yet he says, I, Paul, have been given this priestly ministry to present Gentiles as an offering, an offering to God. Um, I don't know if you went to children's church growing up, um, but in my church, this small country church in Kansas, um, we took up an offering, not just in like big church, but in children's church. I don't know if you ever did this, sort of try to teach kids, you know, the importance of giving. But the problem is when you take up an offering in children's church, you get some strange offerings, right? I don't know if you, I used to like to just convert all my money into coinage because it made louder rings into the, into the coffer. It was very Pharisaic, um, very sort of un-Jesus-like. Um, and, and so you get strange offerings when you ask kids to give an offering. You, you, I mean, you might get, some of them might make a withdrawal, to be honest, if you're not careful. Uh, you, you get a half-eaten candy bar. 
you get Monopoly money. If you got my son in the class, you get a Caterpillar or a Roly-Poly thrown into the offering bucket, um, maybe a McDonald's toy. I mean, the thing is with kids, if you take up an offering, you're going to get a strange offering. And Paul says, I am giving the strangest offering of all as a priest. Here I am, he says, I'm a Jew, I'm a Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin, and here's my offering. I'm coming to Jerusalem, he tells the Romans, and I'm just getting everything ready, and I'm coming to bring the Gentiles as a priestly sacrifice to Israel's God. I've got this, I've got this guy, he was a temple prostitute at the temple of Artemis. I've got this lady, she, she, was, she was wrapped up in all sorts of immorality. I've got this Roman soldier, and I've got this slave, a guy by the name of Onesimus, and I've got all these different Gentiles that came from all different walks of life and all different things that would be seen as so far flung from Israel's God and Israel's faith, and they've been brought together because of Jesus, and so I'm bringing them to God as my, my very strange priestly offering. And that's how Paul sees his whole ministry, is bringing these people to God as an offering. He says that at one point, that here's our, look, here's our sacrifice, here's our offering. It's not an animal. It's our bodies. We give our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and, and pleasing to God. But it's a strange, it's a strange offering, and Paul sees himself giving it in a, in a priestly capacity. He, he says that in the passage. And you, and you say, well, that's great. I'm glad Jesus is our great high priest. I'm glad that the apostle Paul called himself a priest, right? But, but let's be honest, like I am no apostle Paul. Right? There was a presidential debate. I think it was Reagan who said, you know, he was debating and said, my friend, I knew Abraham Lincoln you are no Abraham Lincoln, or something like that. Uh, you might say, I knew the Apostle Paul, and you, Dr. McNall, are no Apostle Paul. Um, what, what about us? Uh, Jesus is a priest. Paul sees himself as a priest, but what about us? And the third observation is this, before we get to some application. Peter, if we turn to Peter, Peter views all Christians as believer priests, not just Paul, not just Jesus, all of us have been called to live a priestly life. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.5, and note like the word choice that he, that he makes here. You also, he says to the church, like living stones. Think about that. Peter's name, you know, given to him by Jesus means stone little stone. And he says, you guys are Peter too. You're little living stones. And you're being built up into a spiritual house. That's a reference to a temple, a dwelling place of God. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All Christians have a priestly calling, Peter says. And he's not just talking to pastors. He's not just talking to, to men. 
He's not just talking to seminary graduates or people with a spotless record or people who have the Bible memorized or people who are going to make their financial living in the ministry. He's talking to literally everybody in the room. He says, you're called as a living stone to be a priest to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And so I said this earlier, but I think some of us have adopted a sort of ticket mentality when it comes to the gospel, a ticket mentality. And the ticket mentality says, Lord, I I recognize I'm a sinner, but you've got the ticket to heaven, and I want a ticket. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want a ticket too, and I'm going to die someday. I want to spend eternity with Christ. That's important to recognize the need for redemption, for salvation, But the problem is if you stay with just a ticket mentality, then Christianity becomes just another form of consumerism. And we're just in search of a product for for me rather than healing for the world. And so some of us have adopted, I think, a ticket mentality when it comes to Christianity. I I have a, my father-in-law has season tickets And when I say to what, you're not going to find it nearly as impressive. But he has season tickets to Kansas State athletic events. I don't know if there's any K-State fans in the room. We're a small, you know, smaller group in Oklahoma. But we go to the football games sometimes. And this is Bill Snyder. He's about 100 years old. And and then uh, the K-State football team. And we got to go several weeks ago. We got to go watch K-State play one of their first home games. And A.J. Parker from here in Bartlesville, Orlando's son, played a great game. I took my daughter Penelope, who's a huge, a huge K-State fan, and she wore her purple, you know. And so I love having a ticket to go watch Kansas State, even when they're not that good. I like having a ticket. But I'll tell you one thing that has never happened on any of our trips to watch Kansas State play. Bill Snyder has never gotten on the public address system and called out to me in the nosebleed section to get in the game. (laughs) There were a few times I I thought maybe I could help, right? (laughs) But he's never done that. He's never called me in. Much to Penelope's chagrin, she's never been called in, even to be a cheerleader, even though she's wearing her outfit. Um, Because here's the deal, being a ticket holder is not the same as being a player. It's not the same as stepping into the action yourself and being used as a part of this team to bring forth victory. Not because of your own efforts, but because of our captain, our leader. And we need to get past just a ticket mentality when it comes to Christianity and realize that we're not just called to get a ticket. That ticket doubles as a collar a collar for priestly service. And you say, okay, what does that look like? Because I'd be really honest, I don't want to wear this. (laughs) I had a pastor friend, I was at a conference recently, and I knew he wasn't a Catholic. He's not really even a pastor, but he was wearing one of these. This theologian named Scott McKnight, and he teaches up in Illinois, and I think he wore it partly just to mess with us. But... um, (laughs) He said, I wear this sometimes to remind myself that I'm a believer priest. And he said, even though it would make my grandmother very angry. Um, 
And he says, the weird thing is, when I go to the airport wearing this, every single time, not just one person, multiple people come up to me. And you know what they ask me? They say, can you pray for me? Because they see the collar. And the collar means I'm someone who will pray for you no matter who you are. Even if you're just walking through an airport and we've never met before, the caller says, I'll pray for you. And so here's what I would say today. This is my big idea. We become priestly when we pray. We become priestly when we pray earnestly for others. We become priestly when we pray. And it's not just my idea, it's a biblical idea. The same book, Hebrews, that talks about Jesus as our great high priest in Hebrews chapter 5, it says this about Jesus' priestly ministry. It says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to know, like, what's Jesus doing right now in his priestly vocation, his priestly capacity, it says this, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, and therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. There are many things in the priestly ministry of Jesus that I can't do. I can't atone for other people's sin. I can't atone for my sin. Uh, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm far, far from it. But one aspect of priestly ministry that we can do is to intercede and, and to pray for others. Christianity isn't a mere ticket to the afterlife, it's a caller, it's a call to priestly prayer. And, and I'll be honest, I probably like a lot of people, if you ask me to list my strengths as a Christian, prayer is not at the top of the list. And I've heard many scholars and pastors even say when they're asked to write books on prayer, it's like, I'd love to, but I feel like I'm not as good at it as I wish I was. And maybe you feel like that. Your prayers sometimes feel hurried and distracted and feeble before God. And there's this sense that ah, I'm just not as big of a prayer warrior as I would like to be. But I've, I've seen the, the importance of it. I've seen it in recent weeks. I went to a meeting, just a, a meeting for a, a small group here at the church, and I was talking with Mike Sorensen and Paul Gustafson, and, and we, were, we had a great meeting. And then I said, hey, you know, I've been having a lot of pain in my arms 
my like carpal tunnel type pain in my wrists and my thumb. And it's gotten so po- to this point, I've had to buy like all these braces and spend a bunch of money on Amazon and all these like ergonomic support things. I feel like an old man and I'm, it's not working. And I've got like these books I've got to write. I've got these lectures I've got to write. I've got these sermons I've got to write. They, they all require typing. And I can't be here like, you know, one fingering it through a book manuscript. That's not going to work. And so Paul said, let's pray. And they, and they prayed for me. And I am not, I'm, I mean, I, 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 I hate to admit this. I'm like a skeptic trapped in the body of a preacher. <laughs> and, and I did my due diligence. I went to get some, some medical help for it and some massage and some exercises and all that. But here's the deal. Um, within a week, like, all the braces were shoved in a drawer on my desk. I'm typing away just as furiously as ever, right? And I credit part of that to somebody who took it upon themselves to say, can I pray for you? Can we, like, set aside the, the business of the meeting and, and put on a collar and intercede for somebody? I can do that. You don't have to be a theologian to do that. You don't have to be uh, some sort of pastor, right? Christians become priestly when they pray earnestly for one another. I was at this conference, the same conference I mentioned where I saw Scott McKnight wearing a strange shirt, and there was another pastor there. His name was Kevin, and he had just planted a church in Nashville, and I've, I've planted a church before, and in the beginning stages, you're just talking to anybody. Please come, please come, right? We don't have anybody. We're starting a church. And so one of the guys he talked to initially was a guy named, also named Kevin. I'll call him Kev the Barber because he was a, he was a barber. And, he, and, and Kev the pastor said that the conversation started a little bit oddly because Kev the Barber just went up to it, just came up to him out of the blue and said, who cuts your hair? And it's one of those questions that can sound like an accusation, right? Like if somebody asks you, who do you think you are? It's not really, you know, and it, it, it sort of sounded like an accusation. He said, super cuts, I, you know, and he said, well, I'm a barber. Why don't you come, why don't you come, you know, see me? And it's, you know, I guess sort of quid pro quo because, you know, they were trying to plan a church and he was trying to plan a, a barber shop. So, so Kev the pastor goes to see Kev the barber. And as often happens in a barber shop, you know, you, you talk, you talk about life. And Kev the barber began to sort of just spill his, his guts about his life and, and the struggles that he, was, that he was going through and the things that were going on in his life. And, and so Kev the pastor, and again, invited him back to church. And the next Sunday, Kev the barber didn't just come by himself, he brought his daughter. And after the service out in the, out in the atrium, the lobby, he said, hey, Pastor, would you pray for me? And the pastor said, sure. And he said, Kev just knelt down right there in the lobby. He said it was kind of awkward, people walking by, and he just knelt down. And so I knelt down with him, and his daughter knelt down. And he said, Pastor, would you pray for my marriage? My marriage is in trouble. He said, yeah, I'll pray for your marriage. He began to, to intercede for, for Kev the barber. And, and then Kev the pastor said, I don't really know why I prayed this. It didn't really have anything to do with his request. But I said, God, would you make Kev 
an intercessor. And he said, I don't even think Kev knows what that word means. <laughs> Would you make him into an intercessor? Somebody who prays fervently for others. And so Kev the barber leaves. He goes back to his work and he comes back a week later and he says, Pastor, I don't know what's going on. I can't stop. I see people and I just want to pray for them. I have this burden to pray for people and I'm praying for people in the barber shop. And, and, that, you know, and he's like, well, do they like that? He's like, I don't know. I have sharp objects. They can't really say no. I just can't stop. It's, it's kind of weird, he said. I just have this burden to pray for people. And then, I, then the other day, the weirdest thing happened. This lady came into my barber shop, and she said, God told me to pray for you. God told me that you've got this heart condition. He's like, I've never even told her that. I don't even know who this lady is. And she prayed for my heart. And then she left. And he said, I felt like God was saying to me, you know that $100 bill you got in your wallet? Go give it to her. She needs it. And he's like, God, I don't even know who she is. I don't know where she lives. And the barbershop was in a sort of a, a rough part of town. And he, so he leaves the, he locks up the door and he goes down the street and he's looking for this lady. He's God, I don't know where she lives. All I know is she had a walker. She couldn't walk very well. And he walks by an apartment complex and a stairwell and there's a walker. And so he goes up and he knocks on the door and it's, it's this lady. And he says, I feel like God wants me to give you this money. I feel like you, God says you could use it. And so he did. And so he leaves the apartment complex, and he, he's walking down the street, and, and he says, hey, I looked across the street, and there were three gentlemen, three African-American gentlemen standing over there, and, and Kev the barber was a white guy, and he, he said, I felt like I was supposed to go talk to him and confess to them that for my whole life, I've harbored racist and prejudicial attitudes. And I said, I'm sorry. My whole life, I've I've held these attitudes, I've said things that I'm not proud of, and I want you, I know you don't know me from Adam, I know this is probably really awkward, but I just want to ask forgiveness. And he said, and Kev, the pastor's like, what happened? They were crying, I was crying, right? And he said, I think that prayer to be an intercessor did something. That's what it means to be the body of Christ, is to intercede for one another. To, to stand in the gap. And to reach out to people who need God on the one side. And to clasp the hand of Jesus on the other side. And to engage in a form of Christianity that is not just a ticket to the afterlife, but a collar and a call to priestly intercession to become an intercessor that's the call of a priestly vocation to grab your collar even if it's not a literal collar the communion with god is not just a ticket to the afterlife it's a call to intercessory prayer and so today we're going to take communion as a reminder that we are not intercessors or mediators in the way that Jesus is. We need Christ. 
We need someone to connect us to God. But because of that someone, we are then sent forth to be broken and poured out for a world that needs, that needs Jesus. Grab your collar. Let's pray. Lord, I breathe in and become aware of your presence here. I, I pause even now with my friends and enjoy your presence, your love. And we breathe out the worry and the anxiety that so often fills us in place of your spirit. Lord, I thank you that you sent Christ as the great high priest, the one mediator between God and humanity. I thank you for his work. I pray, though, Lord, that you would also send us out because of what Christ has done for us as believer priests. And I thank you, Lord, that that doesn't involve some sort of piece of clothing or um, some of the things we typically associate with priesthood, but it does involve intercessory prayer. And so I pray that you would make us what you made Kev the barber, an intercessor as an imperfect person who becomes a conduit of, of your love, your grace by way of prayer. I pray you empower us and equip us in Jesus' name. One of the things that uh, really, really hit me as Josh was talking is about the power of intercession to impart blessing. And I love the idea of um, Kevin the pastor praying over Kevin the barber. And really what he did was he imparted the blessing of, of intercessory prayer. And then he used that, it's like an impartation of a particular ministry. And I, I love it when that kind of that kind of thing happens. Your prayers are so much more powerful than you know. And one of the things about walking in intercessory prayer is walking in and learning to discern the power of that prayer. You can provide blessing in the heavenly places and the heavenly realms through your intercessory prayer that um, you can't you can't know the power of that. You have to walk in that in that by faith. So as we prepare to take communion, um, I want to read that phrase that Josh started with. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Uh, at Grace, we take communion by dipping the bread in the end of the, into the juice. And um, we're going we're gonna to do this this morning in that same way. As you come, I want you to just focus on Jesus as your intercessor. Just worship him as the one who intercedes for you. You might tell him, Lord, here's what I, I want you to intercede for me about today. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in memory of me. You come as you feel led. Father, we thank you so much for the intercessory prayer of the Son. Lord Jesus, we worship you for that intercessory ministry. We rely upon that right now as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as you feel that. I'm 